Well, good morning, Nexus. It is great to be with you here this morning. My name is Aaron. I am, like Michael, part of the teaching team here at Nexus and at Gayton. Uh, we have had a great morning this morning already up in the 930 service, and so I'm excited to be uh, in another gathering here at Gayton this morning. So welcome. Last week, if you were here, we spent uh, the morning celebrating 30 years of the life of the church. And for some of us in the room that's younger than we are, for some of us uh, that's older than we are, but still relatively young in the life of the church, yet over the last 30 years, we have packed a lot of life into this church and into this community as we've welcomed new lives and dedicated babies as we did up here last week. We've celebrated the passing on of friends um, and celebrated their lives together uh, throughout these 30 years. We have welcomed new friends in from uh, other places as they've moved to town, and we've uh, commissioned and sent friends out to go, whether they were moving uh, across the state, across the country, or around the world. We have sent countless people on mission around the world, and so it's been so exciting to see the life of 30 years and to celebrate that. And if you were here, you heard uh, Pastor Mike mention that he uh, was mourning the loss of his own mother last weekend. Um, and so as he was uh, traveling this week to celebrate her life and be with extended family, uh, he was supposed to be speaking this morning. Um, and so we, we continue to pray for him and lift him up. This was also supposed to be a morning of celebrating something else new, a new worship arts pastor. Um, and... Richard will, will not be coming, and so uh, we continue to pray for him and his family as well. And we give thanks for uh, Victoria and Caitlin, who have led us so well in worship. Uh, we give thanks for those who have led in worship arts uh, in our other two services, and now one service here at Gate. And so um, we want to give thanks to them. And in this season, it seems there's a lot of uncertainty. There's transition. There's change going on uh, around us, things we anticipate, things that don't happen, uh, the loss of friends, the loss of uh, loved ones, and just a lot happening around us. And so as we get into this Easter season, in looking at the fact that the story of Jesus is nothing ordinary, there's nothing ordinary about the way he lived his life, the legacy that he left. And so as we look towards Easter in two weeks, we want to kind of go back to the ground level. We want to see what it is that makes up the message of Jesus, why it is so important and impactful, why it has transcended uh, generations over the last 2,000 years. And in the words of Scott Johnson, one of our leaders here at Gaten, just run it to ground. Go, go all the way back to the source and figure out where it is that we're coming from. And so to do that this morning, we're going to look at a story that has a, an infamous character and there are characteristics about him that, if I'm being honest and truthful, if I look back at my high school journey, um, there are some similarities. So I want to take you back to high school, to my high school journey. That is, in fact, me in high school. Doesn't look like it. Um, one thing you'll notice, I'm, I'm really not that big of a UVA fan, but I, I figured of all of the pictures from my high school years I could pick, I would out of, uh, 
respect for uh, what they pulled off at the buzzer last night, I'd, I'd pick that picture. So go Cavs. Hope you do well tomorrow night. So in high school, I was telling somebody last week that we didn't have PE. We just had to play a sport. We had to play two sports for our first two years of high school. And so in every sport, we had a varsity team. And in most sports, we had a junior varsity team. But because we had this requirement that we had to play a sport, they had to come up with some other teams for us to play on. So they created a third level, junior. And I was the starting point guard on the junior basketball team because I really wasn't that good. Our team was not that good. And as high schoolers on the junior team, no other school I've ever heard of has junior teams except my high school. And so who do you play that's below the junior varsity level at most high schools? A middle school team. (laughs) And so we would routinely step onto the court with kids shorter than us who would run laps around us. In fact, there was one game we played at Fork Union against their middle school team. And they beat us something on the order of 90 to 30. They quite literally ran laps around us. We were awful. But then there was baseball, and baseball was my heart. If you can tell in the picture, this wasn't just me dressing up, getting ready for a game or something. I had, I was actually looking back through pictures from high school, and half of the photos of me from high school, I'm wearing a hat. Pretty much the only time I didn't wear a hat was something fancy where I had to dress up. And, and school, because it was against the dress code. But baseball was my thing. And baseball was my goal in life and what I wanted to be uh, when I grew up. And so there was even one college visit um, whose logo may or may not be on the screen uh, that I went and I said, okay, I'm going to play baseball. And my, that was my plan A. I'm going to play professional baseball. Plan B was I'll be an architect. And so I said, I'm going to play baseball and study architecture. And they said, oh, no, I'm sorry. You can't do that. So cross that school off my list. Spoiler alert, I didn't play baseball or study architecture in college, so I could very well have at least applied there. I don't know if I would have gotten in, but that's another story. In my sophomore year of high school, I, I did make the varsity baseball team. Now, truth be told, I, I was kind of a uh, little phony, I felt like. I didn't really feel like I had what it took to really be part of the team. But I dressed the part. I looked the part. I had the uniform. I had the hat. I was fully on the varsity team for one factor. I was fast. And so I made the team because I was either the fastest or second fastest person on the team. So I I didn't get to play very much. I was the pinch runner quite often. And our first baseman was like first or second least fast. So anytime he got on base, I would have to pinch run for him. And again, at Fork Union, the uh, place of all humility for me in high school, Jay got on base. I got called on to pinch run. So I step on first base, take my lead a few steps off first base, and I, I don't know, I'm daydreaming or something. I'm listening for the crack of the bat, but not really paying attention to what's going on. And so I hear the crack of the bat, and I take off running towards second. I wasn't looking at 
really paying attention to anything other than second base. And five strides into it, I get hit with the ground ball. Batter out, inning over, and my coach, who was a yeller, just ripped me apart for that one. The first of numerous times. There was another game we stepped on. We played at a college stadium, which for high schoolers, we played with on a field that if you're a baseball fan, it's baseball season, so I'm just living up the baseball thing right now. Our right field fence was about 200 feet from home plate. That's super short for a high school field. That was like 20 feet tall, but 200 feet. The left field line was about 400 feet. So it was like we were playing on a soccer field almost. And so for us to go into a nice, brand new college stadium, Division I, was one of the nicest fields any of us had ever played on. And that night, I actually got called on to pitch. And so I step on the mound, the catcher flashes down the signals, then he does something else that I, I didn't understand. And so I threw a pitch, tried to get it right down the middle. I probably missed because, I, again, I wasn't that good. And the coach, the yeller, starts to get a rise uh, out of what I'm doing because clearly I had missed something. And so I'm like, okay, we're going to try this again. I'm pretty sure I got the signal right. But again, the catcher did this second signal and I missed it. So then the coach trudges out and starts yelling probably. And come to find out, I was supposed to pitch out, like pitch away so that the guy couldn't hit the ball. Instead, I was throwing it right down the middle of the plate. Well, a great opportune moment for me because within five minutes, there was a bolt of lightning and the storm rolled in and the game was over and I was done with the misery for that night. There was one other uh, instance which will go down in infamy in, in my own mind for the longest home run I have ever seen hit by anyone. This guy hit. Oh, not that guy. That's me. I never hit a home run. This guy. Chris Long hit the longest home run I have ever seen hit by anybody off of me. And that ball just sailed and sailed and sailed. And if you know Chris, you know his dad was famous. He was there at the game. Uh, John Grisham was the coach of the other team. I mean, it's just a different kind of world. And then there's me giving up home runs like that. I really felt like a phony. I, I felt like I, I didn't quite belong. And my confidence didn't match my competence. I dressed the part. I had the uniform. Though as a scrawny little 10th grader, the extra large size uniform didn't quite fit me. But I tried. But at the end of that season, there was something just nagging at me. And as we moved towards the next season, I realized, you know what? Maybe, maybe baseball isn't my number one choice. Maybe that's not what I'm supposed to be doing in life. And, and so I ultimately made the choice before the next season to stop playing and if you can't do, you coach. So I started coaching the next season and have loved stepping on the field to coach and call out of other people. But I always go back to, did I really belong on that field? Was I really part of the team and, and what was going on? Did I have a place there or was I just the fast guy? Well, this morning we're going to look at the Gospel of John in chapter 12. If you have your Bibles or your app, you're welcome to turn there. The verses will also be on the screen. 
And this story features a character who walked through the motions. He checked the boxes, he did the things, he had the uniforms, he played the part. But we're going to look at uh, what that really meant in the life of this story. So, uh, turning to John chapter 12, verse 1. And the passage starts like this. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus. Lazarus being, the verse goes on, the man he had raised from the dead. So there's three things already in this story that this one sentence tells us. One, we're in time six days before the Passover celebration. And so if you know, there's a lot in this story that it's one point in time, but there's a backstory and there's what comes next. And because we're looking back 2,000 years later, we know all of this. But even the gospel writer John does some pointing back and pointing forward in this story. And so if we look forward, we know that six days from now, when Passover comes, that marks the beginning of the, beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly life. This meal that we're going to celebrate later and remember in worship this morning was part of was timed in with the Passover celebration. And so that's where we are, six days before that. So it's all about to come crashing down on the disciples and the world around them in terms of their life with Jesus. What that also means is the second part that places them in Bethany is much like at Jesus' birth with the census and all these people came from all around to one place. It was about to be the Passover. So all of these people were coming from all around to this one place. So it was a busy, hectic, chaotic place. And at this point in Jesus' life, there were a lot of people who did not like him. So he's got a lot of people who don't really like him all around them. And as we read around it, there are some undercurrents of things starting to go south in terms of Jesus' earthly life. And the third part is that he's at the home of Lazarus. The Lazarus, Lazarus, the man who he has just raised from the dead. So if you go back to the last chapter, Lazarus was like dead, dead. Dead, died, wrapped and embalmed and put into the tomb. And Jesus was in another place and Lazarus' family says, can you come back to this place And the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus, you're going to that place because those people don't like you. And you're just going to go right into the middle of these crowds. And Jesus says, yes, we're going to come. We're going to go. And they get to the front of the tomb. And Lazarus' sister says, you really want to open that? Because it stinks in there. He has been like dead, dead for four days. If you've ever seen any, been around something that's been dead, like dead animal on the side of the road, you know it stinks. That's, that's what she was trying to avoid. Jesus is like, you know what? We're doing this. Open the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And after four days, Lazarus gets up and walks out. And so here we are, six days before the beginning of the end of Jesus' life, in a busy, chaotic city, full of people who don't like Jesus and are prepared for their own religious ritual, And they're here together at the home of Lazarus. And so, going on to verse 2. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. 
Yes, we're going to have a dinner because, in Jesus' honor, because he just raised our brother from the dead. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard. I would love to hear from any of you who have some essence of nard in your uh, perfume shelf later. Um, And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. And if you just imagine the smell of a house being filled with perfume, hopefully, never mind, I'm not, not saying that. You know the perfumes that don't smell good. Hopefully it's not one of those. Hopefully this smells good. And if you can imagine with your senses, the smell just overwhelming the room. And there's this powerful sense of smell running through this entire story because Lazarus was dead and was stinky. And now he's alive. And we're anointing, Mary's anointing Jesus with the perfume that smells good. And Jesus is about to die and be buried and have to have perfume put on him lest he smell bad in the tomb. And so these powerful threads helping us weaving through this story. There's also three things about Mary right here and this act of pouring the perfume on Jesus. One is that she's secure enough even to pour out the perfume. This says it's expensive. We find out in a minute from Judas that it's not just expensive. This one jar of perfume costs the amount of money it would take you an entire year to earn. And she just pours it out. She's secure enough in what it is and what she's doing that she's just generous and pours it out on Jesus. She's also humble enough to anoint him. She's not one of the twelve. She's not really part of the the inner circle of people following Jesus. She's just part of this group. But she steps to the front and anoints Jesus with the oil. And then the third part of this, which is so interesting, that in looking at their culture and their time, a woman's hair in public never would have been down. Her hair never would have been down to the point where she could wipe his feet. And so here she is, defying all odds, confidently letting her hair down and wiping Jesus' feet with the oil that she has poured out so generously. Because it's out of gratitude for what he has done for her and her family and her brother and bringing him back to life that she decides to pour this out. So, we turn a corner. And we turn a corner from a nice, heartfelt story of generosity to the character we all love to dislike, Judas. And I think Judas kind of, his bad rap gets embellished perhaps because he's responsible for betrayal of Jesus. But at this point, he's, he's still one of the twelve. He's one of Jesus' closest followers who spent the last few years walking step by step, day by day with him. But these couple lines paint a pretty rich perspective on who Judas was. So verse 4, 
But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. You can almost imagine him in this, like, haughty, self-righteous. That money should have been given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. See, he was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. I don't know about you, but I've got some questions right now. Did they know he was a thief? Did they know he was pilfering their money along the way? You know, one, one perspective on this is that he had some sort of giftedness. He was financially savvy and knew what to do with money. He had that gift. Not all of us do. But he had the gift, and he was savvy enough to be sought out by his peers to say, you know what? You're good at this. Why don't you hold on to our money? But out of that giftedness, the, the nature of humanity, the nature of sin started to pull him down. And he got to this unhealthy place where he was just taken a little off the top here and there. And so he takes a little off the top here and there. But this is also the thing when we look ahead to the betrayal that is all rooted in that giftedness of money. But when we get so focused on the things that we're good at, it can lead us down a slippery slope if we're not rooted in who we are in following Jesus. And so what we see and what we notice is that Judas's perspective on reality was warped. A warped mind, you see, questions every motive. He could not help but see this incredibly generous act of gratitude from Mary to Jesus for anything but a a warped view. He couldn't see it for what it was because his mind had been shifted. But if you think about Judas, he was, like I was on the high school baseball team, he had all the right parts. He had the uniform. He had spent the time with Jesus, walking with the disciples. He was one of the twelve. Maybe they knew about his taking a little off the top. Maybe they didn't. But he hadn't had this act of public betrayal yet. And so he was still one of the twelve. He was still one of them. He had checked all the boxes, knew all of the things, and if you had asked him an answer, Jesus would have been his answer and probably would have been correct. He knew all this stuff. Deep down, he knew it. He just couldn't turn that to action. And so this warped mind questions every motive. And on the flip side, for Mary... Mary's generous mind fights for the highest possible good of those around them. She was fighting for the good of her brother in advocating for his healing in the last chapter. And now she's expressing gratitude out of this generous heart and generous spirit. There's two more lines. Because as usually happens, Jesus has something to say here to Judas. 
In verse 7, Jesus replied, Leave her alone. She did this foretelling in preparation for my burial. So Jesus sees it as a symbolic gesture of gratitude, but also of foretelling what's to come. Painting a picture of, this is going to be my life. I will be buried, and you will need to overcome the stench with perfume. And Mary has done that. And then Jesus goes on to say, You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. He's about to be gone from them. He's about to leave them from the earthly life they have come to know and love. And so that leads me to wonder, what, what do we miss out on? If we don't just step out and act right now, what do we miss out on because we're waiting? Because we're waiting for the perfect, ideal, right time to be generous. That secure, humble generosity that Mary showed would not have been possible six days later. Because Jesus would have been gone from them. But she seized the moment. And in seizing the moment, this unlikely character, a woman, not one of the twelve, not one of the likely people to step out and act, is the first person to proactively act out in following Jesus. See, what she did in wiping his feet is symbolic of what he would do a week later at the Last Supper with his disciples in washing their feet. But he hasn't done that yet. He hasn't showed them that example. And if you think back to a lot of their experiences up until this point, when Jesus did something, the disciples still had a question. They still had a question about, what are you doing? What does this mean? I've always heard this said, but you're doing this. But no, not Mary. Mary, one of the first, if not the first person to step out and act. And so as we look at this warped mind versus a generous mind, we consider two types of disciples. We consider a mature disciple who, like Judas, just checks all the boxes. From the outside, he looks like he's got it together because he's one of the 12. He's been with Jesus. He could pass the test if it was a test. But then you have Mary, who steps out and takes action and puts her faith in Jesus into practice. That secure, humble, confident generosity pushes her out to take the first step of a movement. And that's a movement that we are still here carrying on today. And so I ask you to consider, take just a minute right now to consider, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting on acting for, waiting on doing for just the right time? Is today or tomorrow or this week or sometime soon the best time for you to go ahead, step up with a secure, humble confidence and like Mary, take a step and move. Put your faith into action. I'll give you just a minute to reflect on that.
That perfume she used was a powerful act and a powerful image. And I think even for us, I don't know how many of you guys have used perfume per se, but hang with me here. The idea, the thought that the stench of sin and death can be overcome by the fragrance of perfume. What if, as disciples, on a movement, we are taking that fragrance, that good news, that secure, humble, confident generosity, a sense of optimism and hope, a hope that comes from Jesus. What if we are taking that to the world and overcoming everything that we encounter, everything that holds any of us back or any of our neighbors or coworkers? What if in a moment like Pastor Mike experienced this week, or like some of you have experienced in the tragic loss of a coworker, friend, teacher, uh, who lost her life with her husband on a spring break trip. What if as you've lost a job or looked for a new job or lost a family member or added a family member, in these seasons of transition and crisis, what if as a movement, if we can collectively come together and meet people where they are and put our faith into action, not just knowing what to do, but actually doing it. What would the world around us look like? What kind of place would this community be that we could live in if that fragrance of our faith was lived out? I want you to consider that as we come to the table this morning. And I want you to pause as we prepare to take these elements, as we journey from where this story ended a week before, and we go to a place one week later. See, the interesting thing about reading anything in Scripture is that we know the ending. We know the end of the story, but in this story, they still had a sense of anticipation of what was to come. And so if we sit in that this morning, if we think about what was going on in their minds at the table, as we reflect on the bread and the cup, think about what it means to be on movement. To be one of those disciples who's putting our faith into action, not just coming here for an hour on a Sunday morning, but transforming the rest of our week and transforming our work and our school and our homes and our neighborhoods, everywhere we go and everywhere we interact. How can that be transformed? So I invite you as we come to the table to reflect on that. Reflect on that gift that Jesus gave us and gave us the opportunity to come here to remember together. So bow your heads with me. I'd like to invite you to pray. And this 
act of coming to the table is something that traditionally in the church is for people who have chosen to follow Jesus. And if you have never had that moment where you've consciously said to Jesus, I want to follow you. Please come into my heart and fill me up. I invite you to do that now. You can pray a prayer like this. Jesus, I know what you did for me on the cross. I know you have wiped the sin away and taken that away from me. I want you to come alive in me, and I want to follow you each and every day. For all of us as we gather around this table, it's an opportunity to reflect on the life and the death of Jesus but also that the journey with Jesus didn't end with death. So will you pray with me? God, the gift of your son was truly nothing ordinary. He lived a most generous life, and he showed us how to do the same. He showed us in an example and showed his disciples in an example that they would go out and start a movement of people following you. And so God, as we come to the table this morning, reflecting and remembering on this meal that your son celebrated thousands of years ago, bring that story to life in our hearts and in our minds. May it come alive and inspire us to continue transforming our lives, to transform our world, and to make a difference in the name of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.